Oh, hey there, team. This is part one of two with Ethan McCara. He is lovely, and you're going to laugh and cry and love him as much as I do. You're probably not going to cry, but you will do the other things that I just said. Also, he is in London at the moment, and we discuss his live art piece, Where Are You Now?, which happens once a month. And we recorded this over Zoom, and it sounds like it. So the reason I'm talking to you up top is because this art piece we make reference to on the show has since had some scheduling and some show changes. So the dates and the subjects that we reference on this episode have since changed and it's a moving part. He was creating on Mondays for the entire day, but this past showing in March was on a Saturday. So he has said that he's possibly going to keep the show on Saturdays, but he's unsure. So please visit ethanmacara.com. That is spelled like machare because it's Italian. So it's E-T-H-A-N-M-E-C-H-A-R-E.com forward slash where are you now? And the dates and times and all the info will be there. The show is a super big blast, and I've been on it a few times, so if you do tune in, you will possibly see a familiar face or two. Anyway, this programming note is necessary because if I edit it out of the episode exactly what we discuss, we lose the banter, and there's a bit of other info that's peppered in there, so I couldn't do a hard edit. So anyway, he would love to see you there in April, and he will be happy to answer any of the questions if you visit his site. I would give out all of his personal details up top, but I think the fandom would overwhelm him because you folks are lovely. So... Let's just get on with the show. Oh, you look so cute. You like, you're in your whole zone. I love that. That's where you take our, that's where you do your whole thing. I was like, you know what? I was going to choose another part of my house. And I was like, I might as well just be familiar yeah. with Kelly because this is how she knows me. You know, I didn't, I was like, should I just be in my bathtub? How I normally would be? <laughs> you know, or- Oh, hi, you're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky ones that got out and all the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. I'd like to welcome our guest, Ian McCara. Ian, er, oh, Jesus Christ, Ian. <laughs> I was like, should I stop? Her? Yes. I- <laughs> I'm so out of my mind. Okay, let's get back. We're going. I'd like to welcome our actual guest. <laughs> Ethan McCara. Ethan has always been a creative person from making blockbuster films as a kid by dangling his little sister off the roof of his house to get the shot he wanted. Don't worry, she survived. To theater and film acting, TV hosting, painting, greeting card making, theater producing, writing, documentary filmmaking. He's an interdisciplinary artist, if you can't tell from all of those skills. He works in a lot of mediums because he's brimming with creativity and ambition. He's also a self-identified hustler who knows how to deliver. I better know Ethan from joining his wildly successful live art piece out of London called Where Are You Now? It is a series which began initially as a 12-hour live art piece in August of 2020 in response to the worldwide pandemic that left many feeling isolated. In January of 2021, they changed it to eight hours, but for those eight consecutive hours, Ethan will be on monthly Zoom calls talking to anyone in the world from the hours of 4 p.m. to 12 a.m. London time. Each month features a new topic. At the end of this interview, we will give you all the necessary information so that you can tune in and potentially give your story and help his project grow. The theme for March is money and April's theme is up in the air. So tune in for that and we will put that information in links and everything once this episode airs. So Ethan, after it took me 72 years to get through your bio and 47 takes, tell us what got you into acting? Why did you defect and go over to London town? What made you come up with the idea for where are you now? And my favorite and desperately need to know answer to this question, if you're comfortable answering is, has anyone revealed to you that they committed a felony on this on the Zoom chats? So so, Ethan, take it away. Oh, my God. Thanks for having me. Just call me Ian. Um, <laughs> Smart ass. I'm keeping it in. Now everyone has to know why you said that. Keep going, Ethan. <laughs> um, so many questions. Um, let me try to just, my mind will go from the very first one, which was, how did I become a um, an actor, a creative person? You know what? I think I was just born that way. I have always been right out of the womb somebody who wanted to find new ways of expressing myself. And I just, from a very small age, I, I saved up my babysitting money, first job, we'll get to that, you know, to buy a VHS video camera from my aunt and uncle 
Yes, they didn't give it to me. They sold it to me, Chintzy. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I love them. But um, they, it was like one of those VHS video cameras, you know, the ones that's like bigger than your head, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, big, and I was like, you know, I was, I don't know, 10 years old with this massive camera on my shoulder. And I made these movies in my backyard and I recruited all of these classmates. I grew up in a really, really small town, like population 478 no joke. And so it was just, there weren't a lot of people around, but I made the most of, you know, what I could with casting cows and chickens, et cetera, <laughs> from the farm across the street. Um, but I, I recruited all of my neighbors and uh, my friends and I made these movies and and we went from ancient Greece to modern day soap operas to the news. I, I did everything. I, I, yeah, like you said in my intro, I did a film, a horror film where I dangled my sister off the roof of our home, our two-story home. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> um, while I had, while I held that video camera in one hand and grabbed her hand with the other. So I was looking like I was trying to save her. Oh my God. Slowly peeled my, her fingers off of the trough of the house. And then she fell down below, but she was fine. Don't worry. It was grass down below, but yeah. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't the kindest director probably, <laughs> but I, I did get what I needed. So, oh my God. Wait, um, Ethan, did she really fall? Like she really, did she, did she, did she know she, she was going to? No, I, I wouldn't, you, know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't tell someone that because then they wouldn't agree to do it, Kate. No, no. <laughs> oh my God. I was smarter than that. I was smarter than that. I was like, I just need a quick shot of you acting like you're about to fall. But it's like, don't worry. I'm going to have you. Don't worry. Um, yeah. oh so it God. started, it all started there. All the nonsense started there. And then, and then I moved to Los Angeles um, I went to an international university and I was traveling the world, you know, so got to meet all these different people and made documentary films when I was in university. And I moved to LA to, cause I, I always wanted to be in front of the camera. And so, uh, wait real quick. You I didn't, was. you said how big your town was, but you didn't say where it was or what state. So I meant to ask you where, where actually was your town? It was in this, it's called Falls Village, Connecticut. Got it. Okay. Keep going. So then I, after I finished uh, college, and I had been making documentary films, I decided to uh, move to LA because I always wanted to be in front of the camera. I knew that, um, I mean, even in the work that I made, I call it work, but even in the the stuff that I made as a kid, I always was directing and in front of the camera too. I, of course, I was the star of my own movies, of course. I mean, of course, you have to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, when I peeled my sister's hand off the the the, the trough of our house, it's like, I made sure in the credits to put hand, Ethan. You know. <laughs> no, you did not. Yes, of course. Absolutely. I have to be featured, you know? Uh, yeah. Hand, Ian McCara. I, um, I will kick your ass. When I finally meet you, I'm going to put my hands on your throat. <laughs> okay, so you um, moved to LA and you want to be yeah. in front of the camera. So you go, but did you go to the international university in La- like an international university in Los Angeles or did you go prior to moving? No, I went prior to moving. It, okay. was, a, it was a it was a university. Um, it had the best name. It, it's people make fun of it all the time. It's not called that anymore, but it was called Friends World. That was the university. I mean, it's Friends because it's actually started as a Quaker school, so everything in Quaker is called like Friends, like yeah. Friends Meeting House. So it had Quaker roots, but it's still called Friends World. I mean, it's like I used to tell people I got a degree in underwater basket weaving. <laughs> because, you know, and my, my friend Allie, she gets mad when I when I kind of say that it was like a hippie school and I shouldn't put it down. So if she's listening, I'm really sorry. I'm not putting it down, but <laughs> it was a very, very alternative school. We didn't get grades and it was owned by Long Island University, but it's an accredited university. So anybody listening who thinks I don't have a real bachelor's degree, you can fuck off <laughs> because it's accredited through Long Island University. And I worked my ass off. So it's experiential education. You you spend the first semester in a classroom somewhere in the world. They have eight centers around the world. So I was in Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and London, and India. And I um, I lived in all those places. But the second semester, you go out and you do an internship. So you do whatever you want to do in the field that you're studying. And since I was always an outlier, I everyone I was studying with, they were true, true they were they were interested in like conflict resolution and they were changing the world. They were going to change the world through working at nonprofits or NGOs. And I was like, um, I'm going to get an internship at the Rosie O'Donnell show. 
which I did. <laughs> okay, because that, that's where I was like, wait a minute, like you got sucked into the vortex of like changing the world. Okay, so so the schools, the pre- or the idea behind the school wasn't necessarily that it was geared only towards artists. It was... It we- wasn't geared towards artists at all. Okay. It wasn't for artists at all. I, I thought when I was going into it that maybe I would study international relations. Ah, that's what and- I studied. Very cool. Okay. Oh, right, yeah. And so I thought oh, this will be a great way to really see the the world, you know, and, and to understand how the world operates. And from going from a town of, like I told you, 500 people to now I was in big cities and in and rural places where there was no running water. So it was just like one of those things of, oh, I'm just exploring and understanding how the world really works beyond my my scope. But in that time, I knew I couldn't, the artistry still lived inside of me. So you can't, you can't beat it out of you. Well, no you try what. though, don't you? Yeah, it's like, you yeah, want to make money yeah. doing anything else. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. So, so while I was there, I was like, oh, well I can save the world. I'm putting that in massive quotes because I have not saved the world. And I, you know, but I was like, oh, I can do that through uh, film and I can do that through art. I can do that through, you know, performance. I can do that through storytelling. I can do that through writing. Those were all art forms that I was engaging in when I was in Friends World. So in Friends World, what what ended up being your degree then? Did you... It was actually in interdisciplinary studies, but I, I, I did a concentration in documentary filmmaking. Oh, cool. Yeah. And did you did you like the school? Like, did you have a good time? Oh, I loved it. I loved it, even though it, it, there there were there were a lot of flaws and, and there, there wasn't a, there wasn't always a ton of support and it was really expensive. It was so invaluable. I, I wouldn't, it, it, it informed everything that I've done ever since because of the people that I met, the stories that I learned, understanding how other people's stories is like, that's what I was meant to do, you know? And so no, when I moved to LA, I brought all of that with me, every piece of that, that journey and, and all the people that, uh, whose stories I heard and their trials and tribulations and how economics work and how governments work and how farming works and how land work. Like we, we learned so much there in, in friends world about real, real life issues. And, and, and because you're not in a classroom, you actually go and do work with, with real people every second semester there, there's there's no comparison to that. You can sit in a classroom all day and you can learn about stats or people, but when you're actually working on a farm, or I made documentary films about uh, nonprofits, this one in Nicaragua called The Women's House, and you're following these women around like I did to see what their daily life is like, and they're participating in these projects called like animal husbandry projects where they raise chickens and then to be able to sell the eggs and then feed their families and these are really incredible stories that, you know, I wouldn't otherwise have had access to. So I never would change it for a million years. Well, and it's been a a different um, episode with Bella Heathcote on the podcast. She had said, you know, she's an actor and she said the actors that start to lose performative uh, or sort of being in touch and their performances suffer are the ones who sort of uh, remove themselves from normal life or remove themselves from being exposed to different experiences. So I would imagine your, your performances probably got stronger as a direct result of seeing literally the world and how, you know, other humans behave. And that informs you as an artist on every level, not just on a documentary level, but even as an actor, as a painter, as a whatever, you're getting fed in that way. So I actually think that's, that's really clever. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. I am really clever. <laughs> no, I, I never, I never anticipated. It was just, you know, that thing when you're young, it's just happening to you. Mm-hmm. But then yes, once I got to LA, then exactly what you just said happened. I felt like, because for me, I didn't, I didn't go to drama school. And so when I got to LA, so many people I met, they'd been to drama school. They had all this incredible experience, which is so brilliant. And I wish that I went to drama school in those ways. But at the same time, I was like, oh my God, I've seen things that I would have never be able to seen, have seen if I was in drama school. And so I, I felt like I had a perspective I was really grateful for. And then of course, then I did study in, in, in LA. I, I studied at acting schools and improv schools and that kind of stuff to like, be like, Oh, I want to understand the craft of acting and the craft of performance and comedy and that kind of stuff. 
And you're not good at comedy yet. So that we let's not let's not mention those schools because it's not going to be a good, you know, b- a banner for them because they're, you're a product of that. So we should probably just brush past those schools. OK, so you so you study all of that. Now you were doing were you doing um, live theater performance art things in Los Angeles? Because I kind of want to get to the it's just I think it's fascinating all the stuff that you've put together. So were you, did you transition into performance art in Los Angeles or did you wait to do that till you went to London? I guess I, I consider myself, I guess what, like, oh, this is hard because I think like as a, I, I only started doing what I call performance art here. This is newer to me here in London, which is what, where are you now is. I consider that like a performance art piece or a live art piece. And I think those words are, people don't really understand them. They don't maybe understand the terms and what they mean. But for me, uh, being a, a live artist or per- performance artist, those things are sometimes undefinable because they're pieces that exist and you don't know what's going to happen. They're participatory. So the audience or audience, I'm putting that in quotes, a a live art piece or a performance art piece could be on the street. I've done things on the street before and, and you don't, there, there is no audience per se. You haven't gathered a bunch of people in the room and you haven't charged them a ticket. There, there's no script. So I only started doing performance art recently within the past two years but my my background before in LA, yes, I had done a lot of theater. I had I made a documentary film in Los Angeles uh, when I first moved there. So I had more of the traditional acting and performance path in in Los Angeles. I, I got the headshots and I got the agents and I I went on auditions and I I didn't write any of my own work there. But then when I moved to to London, I wrote my own um, one man show, one uh, solo solo show. I hate saying one man. I'm just I'm so over gender. But <laughs> I, I wrote a solo show and um, about my experience as a naked house cleaner, which we're going to get into. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to get into that. I wrote that down well before this interview. I was like, I need to know everything. Okay, so going back to the initial question. So you were a born performer, you know, you're you're moving in that space. And now for most people, LA or New York are kind of Mecca for being an actor in front of the camera. That's just where you go. So why did you or what made you decide London was a better fit for you? Or is it a better well, fit? Yeah, you know, it was, I spent 11 years in LA. So I felt like when I moved to London, which is nine years ago now, I I really, really felt like it was time for a change. And for, I felt like I had kind of done everything that I could do in the LA um, realm. And I was just tired of the the kind of rat race of it all and i just been it was it was more personal too i had been through a very unexpected traumatic breakup to be honest with you and so i i went on this what i was called my eat gay love journey to europe instead of eat pray love and i went and i worked on farms i put my hands in the dirt and i worked on like a goat farm and an alpaca farm and i I ended up meeting this French guy and he became, he, we, we were pen pals, pen, pen pals, no pen pals. Come before. on Ian, get it together. I used to, I used to host this online talk show called doing it with Ethan in LA. And I would interview artists and actors and uh, sometimes celebrities and people. And I would, whatever they had to, um, it wasn't a typical interview show that they were like five minutes long. It was, it was before, Anybody thought that you could do, I'm giving myself a major pat on the back here. It's before, like, I was embarrassed to reach out to people to say, I have an online talk show. Now, that's there. all there is. That's it. <laughs> like, yeah. And so back then it was like, it was 2010. So, or nine, I guess I was at, I was asking people to do it. And um, anyway, from doing that show, it was on YouTube as well. And this guy, his name is Noam. He's my boyfriend now. Uh, he he was like a fan of mine and he wrote and because he saw my interviews. So I ended up going to France that was planned to go put my hands in the dirt after my dramatic breakup for Eat Gay Love. And he said, I'm going to be in Paris during these dates. I said, well, I'm going to be in Paris during these dates. So then when I met him in Paris, it was kind of on. And I had been thinking, I'm already going to go to London anyway to visit some friends. And I thought, God, I'd love to maybe stay there. And he was like, I want to move to London. So I literally moved to London on a whim. But it really was in pursuit of a different artistic career path because I'm not driven I'm career focused. God damn it. Um, I don't let any man tell me what to do. Okay. Okay. 
<laughs> I am a strong, independent woman, people. And so I, uh, I came to London because I felt like it was a great place to start looking at uh, writing my own material, particularly live material. Now, real quick, I just want to go back just logistically speaking. So he was not a UK national, nor were nor were you at the time. So what was the visa process? How were you able to, you know, how are you able to do it? Well, he he is a, a European national. So when he had no problem living and working here because he's European Union. I mean, we just recently the UK left the European That's, Union two years ago. Yeah. yeah. So that causes a major problem. So now it would never exist. But he had all the rights to work here because if you're part of the European Union, you can work and live in any country. So because he has a French passport, he could live and work in the UK. No problem. My I my family, I my great grandfather was Italian. And if you're Italian, you, no matter when your grandfather or grandmother, whoever um, naturalized, if it was after a certain time, you are, were still considered a, an Irish citizen. So I could get an Irish, uh, Irish, sorry, Italian, Italian passport. He's so, jealous. He wants to be Irish. Come on, Ethan. <laughs> I know. My other side of the family is Irish. Ah, but okay. They don't care about, they don't care about letting you get an Irish passport. The Italians are still like, yeah, you can still have one, even though you're American. So, so you get to work in the UK under your Italian passport, but you don't have to declare Italian citizenship or do you? No, you do. You, I got Italian citizenship. Yes, okay. I had to prove like my family lineage, and then they they give you that passport. But then that passport is good here. But I've been here long enough that now I have UK residency. Do you? Did you have to surrender your American? You did not. That's lovely because some countries we have that deal with where you have to surrender your citizenship to the U.S. in order to claim citizenship elsewhere. So that's great. Yeah. I was just that's very that stuff is very intriguing to me because I I do I get that itch too of as an artist of like you know is a different city maybe the solution like yeah. with that did you yeah. find did London recharge you and you were like oh I'm supposed to be here once you got yeah, there yeah yes <laughs> I I always loved this city but it was absolutely that feeling of there's just a totally different vibe here and I guess I also felt a little bit if I'm de- being totally honest because why not that. LA, I kind of felt like there were so many uh, people like me where I felt like here, I felt like I, even with just my accent, it's so stupid, but like, I just stood out just a little bit differently. You know, it's just like one other thing to say, oh yeah, that American queer. So I just felt like, you know, (laughs) that it was just a little bit, I had a, a bigger opportunity maybe to, to kind of be, to stand out. But that's a very real thing. I I think you're very smart to have recognized that. And it is any way to differentiate because if it like I said earlier in the episode, if we're all headed towards the same quote unquote Mecca as artists, either in New York or L.A., then to get seen in an already difficult industry is infinitely harder. So the idea that you could go somewhere else and stand out as an artist is really smart. And yeah, yeah, that is the artist struggle constantly of just pick a city, which city I don't know. Exactly. Um, yeah. There was right. something too, I just want to say yeah. that was invigorating about changing the yes. city, changing your location inspires you as a, as an artistic person, as a creative person. It was like all the people I were meeting were so different than people in LA. I mean, I, I could talk for days about it. I mean, you know, besides the weather, which has such a huge effect on how people act, <laughs> you know, everyone truly is more mellow and relaxed in LA. And here it is really not like that. And British people are not forthcoming. And so that really informed too, what kind of work I wanted to make. What do you, I just want to probe a little deeper. What do you mean British people are not forthcoming? Is it like the, the Southern way of like, oh, bless your heart or what is? Kind of, yes. Okay. It's a little bit of like, there's this uh, idea here of like the stiff upper lip. Mm. So it's, it's that, you know, you, you don't go too far into what's really going on with you. You don't, you don't really spill all your problems. You don't really kind of share the most intimate details of your life. And, but I, I, that's what I do. I mean, I, I also in LA I was, I did do hosting work and stuff. So, and I had my own, you know, online show, like I said, about doing it with Ethan. So I like asking people questions. So I'm a digger, you know, I like to dig into people's lives. And so with British people, it was like a lot more excavating. Like it took way more. in America. I feel like in LA, you could, you just say like one question, you get their whole life story, That's you right. know, where, where here I feel like, oh boy, you really put me to the test people, which I loved. I loved it because 
you know, I like a challenge. And you can see that in um, for all of you that are going to tune into Where Are You Now uh, eventually, which is such a lovely format. You can tell when you watch the people that you interview that are in the UK, I can see you sometimes having to do and this is not to criticize them at all, but just seeing you have to sort of bob and weave and do a backflip to try and get the answer you're seeking. And then you very graciously, when you know that that person is absolutely unwilling to unzip their skin in that way, you just pivot in such a way that they probably wouldn't even know that you're like, okay, got to move on. And that your audience wouldn't know. I only, I only know because I've, you know, because of the podcast and interviewing people and knowing, okay, this person does not want to answer that we will move around it. And it's that in and of itself is a really, you're very adept at that. It's a very huge skill to have to know what the person in front of you is willing to reveal versus, you know, the topics that they're not. And I, that would be, I would struggle with that. And, and I've, I've seen that a lot in the UK and my limited experience there of everything is okay. And I do, I actually do like that about LA that because everybody there is, you know, not everybody, but a lot of us artists are these, you know, damaged little wounded ducks. And so we're like, I'm going to tell you everything. I kind of, I do like the authenticity of that, but I also appreciate what you're saying, which is the like, nope, step up your lip. We got it. But I can yeah. see that being uniquely difficult in what you do. Um, very much, very much. But again, it's just another experience, you know, it's just another way of like honing your skills as a, as an artist or an interviewer, or just having a sixth sense about people too. You're just constantly honing in, I feel like, or I feel like I am, you know, 100%. just trying to learn about people in the ways that they feel comfortable. Also, Americans really, really understand, I think more acutely how to articulate their emotions. And mm-hmm. it, maybe it's because we have a more of a therapy culture. Not everybody. I mean, my family thinks if you go to therapy, you're nuts. So sure. not everybody, certainly, but in, on the coast, you know, in New York and, 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 in LA, it's like, yeah, everybody's in therapy, British people. It's, it's very, or, you know, in UK, very different. I think there's still a whole stigma around mental health here more so than in the States. Why do you think that is? I think it goes back to this idea of the stiff upper lip, you know, of this kind of feeling that you, you have to pretend that you're okay. You know, you have to, you can't really be vulnerable. Vulnerability equals weakness. So much of that goes back to gender roles and masculinity and all of that bullshit. So for sure, I think that's, that's wrapped up in it, but there's something too, maybe about it. That's just, it's just cultural. It's just like, it's history here that just keeps perpetuating itself. It's changing though. It's certainly changing. I mean, I've only been here, you know, nine years and I've seen the difference in it. Do you mind saying, so do you have access to mental health support there that you, that like there is a culture that you could yes. get mental health support there? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm not a big fan of the Royal family, but the, the Prince Harry and William, that's their names. I got it. Uh, <laughs> they've come out hugely for proponents of mental health and, and saying they went to therapy and that they absolutely advocate for counseling and whatever you think about the Royal family, they still have a huge voice. They have a huge platform. So tons of um, celebrities have come out, tons of prominent figures, even, even MPs, members of parliament, people have spoken out. There's been funding now for that. So it is 100% much more spoken about now. And the access to it, I think is much more, it's more easily accessible. That's lovely. So do you see yourself staying in London? Is this is this it for you? Or do you think you might move again? Well, just recently, I was like saying to my boyfriend, Oh, my God, I miss LA. I'm really over the weather here. I know it sounds oh. so cliche, but it's like, it's so damn cold and dreary. And I've been really California dreaming. And so who knows, I might be back in in California, like next year, who knows, but I, I I'm head over heels. You are. Okay. That's for this yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So two questions and then we'll get out of this intro bit. Uh, wh- what made you come up with where, where are you now? I started where are you now because I was working on another uh, project at the time, right before the pandemic hit, where it was going to be live in person, where I would go to cities or city centers or public places like parks or um, outside of libraries, just places where we we say here high streets, you know, really, really busy areas where there's just a lot of people around because there's 
stores and things that people use. And so I I went to Leicester Square in the central in the central center of London to test out this project. And I I set up two chairs, a little teeny table with a rotary phone on it, just to be funny. And uh, because you know, for people who don't know what a rotary phone is, <laughs> and I put up a sign and it said something like, Can you live 10 minutes without your phone. Could you sit down with me and have a conversation for 10 minutes and not look at your phone? How, how do you communicate? How do you connect with your friends? How addicted are you to your, your cell phone? And so I really, so I, I, I sat down, I, I had my friend Kath with me to kind of monitor. I literally thought that I was just going to sit there and nobody would sit with me. After about three minutes of me sitting there, not even, People, Leicester Square is a very, very big, have you been to London? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's a very big tourist area. It's a big, 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 it's not, a, it's not actually, it doesn't feel like a square. It feels like a big circle. And there's tons of like movie theaters and casinos and theaters all around it and stuff. So it's a very, very touristy area. And and, and also regular folk walk through there too, because it's all in the center of people going to their jobs and stuff. So I literally thought no one would sit down and talk to me. And within two to three minutes, I had a line. And people were desperate to sit down and talk to a stranger. It was unbelievable. So this is an example of live art or what we call, what I call live art or performance art. So it, it, it really blew my mind and it made me realize what I suspected, which is that we are addicted to our cell phones. We feel the need to connect, but we don't know how to connect anymore. Um, connection is now through a text message. It's through an emoji. It's through social media. And frankly, it's bullshit. It's fine. It serves a purpose and it's great, but it should have a limit to it. And we have lost our way, I think, with true connection. And I don't want to be one of those grandpas or grandmas who are like, back in my day, but my God, I mean, <laughs> back in my day, I mean, I miss, like, I really miss those moments of you couldn't be in touch with somebody every second of the day and you maybe had to call them or write them a letter or you had to go visit them and you had to have face-to-face -face time with people. So the project started from that. That's a long answer. And so then I was going to bring that to different cities around the UK and I was writing a funding bid with the arts council here because we have really great arts. We have really good arts funding here in this country. Another reason why I left LA, I was like, wow, I feel so much more supported as an artist here in the UK. I have heard that and, over and over and over. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. And so I was putting in a funding bid for a project grant with the Arts Council to take this project to different cities in LA, uh, in, in around the UK, and then the pandemic hit. So everything went to shit. Like the Arts Council closed down their funding bids for a little while. They were reassessing what they wanted to do, uh, you know, how long this was going to last, all that kind of stuff. So for months and months and months, I sat there thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then my friend, one of my best friends, Jeannie Weenie, she said, what about doing it online? And I was like, but that's not, I, that's the antithesis of what I want to do. I don't want people to pick up their phones and their computers and talk to me. What? No. But if it's the only thing we can do, then maybe that's the right thing to do. So it took me months and months to months to find what that would look like. And so then I came up with the idea of doing a durational piece. So having 12 hours that I would sit there and be completely present for anybody who logged on. And it's all set up like a webinar mode. And if you don't know what that means, it just means that your computer sets it up so that when you log in, your, your microphone and your camera are off. So it's like watching TV. No one can see you. It's just that. And so the first thing that comes up when you log in is is me and hopefully i'm talking to somebody because i ask people to volunteer 10 minutes to speak with me about the monthly topic and the first one was in august of 2020 and the topic was the pandemic and i had no idea that i was going to keep it going it was just going to be a one-time thing i was just going to do it one time 12 hours and i made it through the 12 hours and it was brilliant and it was beautiful and it was incredible and i was such on a high and then my other good friend amy nichols said you should make it a series and have different topics and i said i'm gonna steal that thank you amy nichols and then she threw <laughs> 
out all these ideas of different topics. And I was like, shit, I'm going to steal those too. So then I made it a monthly series and I'm committed to doing it for one year. So we're halfway through right now. Oh, wow. And so are you going to, because I wondered this, having watched it and participated in it, are you going to make it live somewhere permanently, like record it and make it a podcast or make it a video series? Or is it just, it exists in the moment that it exists and that's sort of it and goodbye? Yeah, I think that's really what it's going to be. I think that's also the beauty of live art and performance art that I think people don't uh, maybe understand is that it's just this time, this place, period, the end. Because lots of people ask me, is it recorded? Can I watch it? And all of that can be very flattering because it's like they want to see your work, which is beautiful. But there's something about, I am working on making a trailer right now for it so that I can show people visually what I do because I do think it's a concept sometimes that people don't understand. And so I feel like there is something about, it's like live, that's why I love theater, right? It's like you go, you sit, it's only in that room, whatever happens, happens. That is the absolute beauty of art or theater or live theater. It's It can't be recreated. You know, on a movie or a TV show, you can do another take, you can make it great, you know, you can get the audience to laugh louder in a, if there's a sitcom audience, whatever. But in, in this sense, I really like that it was just, you're either here and you see it or you don't. And that's it. And so you said you're putting a trailer together. So is that with the idea that you might be able to make this more go beyond a year or is it? Yeah, I think, I think the trailer is to, 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 continue to grow the audience because the audience has grown, but I really want to blow it up. I really, 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 I want to get like featured on the BBC. I want to be featured in, you know, the New York times or whatever I want to, or, you know, I want to really get featured on, on bigger publications so that more and more people join. I'm, I'm curious what that would look like for me because it already does feel like, Sometimes I have, not sometimes, oftentimes I have a line of people waiting to talk because people, what you do is you raise your, I mean, you know, because you participated, but you come on when you're ready, you see that I'm talking to somebody else. Hopefully, sometimes I just talk to myself because no one's volunteered, which is very awkward, but that's totally part of the piece, totally part of the piece. And it's uncomfortable, but it's what it is because the whole point of the piece is that I am here to be present for you. And, and so when you're ready to talk, I'm ready to listen. That's it. So because it's all about connection, right? And so sometimes, depending, when it was 12 hours, I would have moments where nobody would have their hand raised. But people were there watching, because I I can see everybody in the room, but nobody had their hand raised. So I'd have to talk to myself or sit there silently, which, as you can tell, I like to talk, so it's really hard to sit quietly. (laughs) But but I, I figure it out. I figure it out. So I think the trailer will end up being to to grow the audience so people who don't understand it in the coming months can understand it. But also for funding, um, I would I would like to pitch it to corporations. Um, I kind of have a vision of Apple or Microsoft like becoming a sponsor, or maybe I do it internally with some of these places, uh, some of these bigger, bigger places. I think getting to know who you work with could be really important to make a workplace better. So I think it has a life outside of the public. It could be in the private sector in a way. Well, especially now because so many businesses are reevaluating their model of even needing an office space post pandemic. So a lot of these businesses have sold the buildings that they owned, or they've just said to people in perpetuity, you can work from home. And then that speaks to the need exactly what you were saying for what inspired the project of connect being connected because a large part of work is, you know, the quote unquote water cooler chat and the getting to know people in that way. So I would, I would totally agree with you that a corporation could benefit from the connection of employees feeling as if they know one another and being then further invested in the in the company. I mean, I think it's a great Absolutely. idea. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the more that you understand about someone else, whether you work with them or it's your neighbor, the better person you're going to be, the better citizen, the better employee, like you're saying, you're just going to have be- bigger empathy, more understanding, That's right. It's just for me, it's basic. It's absolutely basic, but we really don't give it that attention. We really don't. And it actually, it isn't basic for a lot of people. That concept of connection 
And you're, I mean, there's all these studies, everyone should look them up about the psychology of what it's doing to what is Gen Z right now and how disconnectedly connected they are and what it does to their, the development of their little, little baby minds. Huge, huge. There's books written about it. I Mm -hmm. read one. Yeah. It's unbelievable. That's also why I started the project too, was for, for thinking about young people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I did this artist residency, um, at this arts organization that I work with. And I had like a week where I got to interview all these different kinds of people who lived in this city, not far from here called South End. And I met with all these young people and to hear them speak about the way they connect now and their disconnection, it is mind blowing the emotions that they feel when actually someone sits down and, 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 you know, I was just asking them questions in person. We were in person and it was, it was just crazy to see the kinds of things they said, the feelings that they hold back, the, the emotions that they don't feel like they can really express because you can't really express something over a text message because sometimes you just got to ramble in real life and you got to get through it with your friend or your mom or your, your sibling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really um, interesting time with technology and and how humans connect. Yay. Well, I just, I, that's why I wanted to probe you on that because I really, I like the concept and I think it's a very fun project. And just the final question, this intro bit, has anyone revealed to you a felony or some sort of crime that they have committed whilst on this live art piece? Maybe like a fashion crime. No, um, oh, I feel like um, <laughs> I'm so ridiculous. No, uh, not yet. Not yet. Okay. I am. I mean, sometimes I will tell you that sometimes as I'm doing it, because now I've done it for over 60 hours of talking to people. Sometimes there is a, a, a feeling within me where somebody's saying something that I don't really necessarily agree with. And it's like, it's really hard to find the, the, the middle ground of, I don't want to challenge them because this is a, in a really difficult way, because this is a place where I want them to feel totally welcome. And I want them to come back and volunteer again, or I don't want them to feel like I'm putting them on the spot because there are, everyone's watching, you know, and everybody knows that everybody's watching, but, and I know it's brave and vulnerable to, to volunteer, but it is a it's, it's a difficult place sometimes for me when I'm like, oh, right, okay, so how do I navigate around what you just said, but not totally make it like I don't agree with you, but like I want to also maybe clarify your point or something. So that's been hard. That's been a challenge. Oh. But no, no one said they've murdered anyone yet uh. or committed any felonies. Yeah. You know, I hadn't even thought about though. What if, what if someone, cause you're getting people from all over the world. What if someone says, you know, something, I don't know, racist or transphobic or, you know, anti LGBTQ, like how, Oh God bless. Like I've, (laughs) that makes me wonder. I'm like, Oh, when that person comes on the podcast, I'm going to have to be real careful. (laughs) Oh God. Uh, Yeah. Nothing. I I thought about it a long time before I did it. Like I prepared myself for the worst case scenario. That's always what I do. Luckily, none of like what you just said has completely happened. Like it hasn't been, but it's like something where it's maybe slightly, maybe in that vein where you're like, Okay, wait, what do you mean? Yeah. (laughs) And so it's like, you want to have a conversation about it, because that's the point of of it. But sometimes people put on the spot, maybe they're, they haven't thought about what they're saying. And so I have to be really um, careful and compassionate, I feel like in those moments. Well, and it becomes a teachable moment, because if they are unaware of their own bias, or their own, I don't even know how to say it. But yeah, I think it beca- if you handle it compassionately, that could that is actually how you reach across the aisle or how you, you know, change hearts and minds as opposed to, okay, fuck you, get off my piece. Thank you so much. That was great. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And also I feel the same about me. Yeah, I, I feel like I may I may say something that is uh it's totally my blind spot. I may ask a question that's inappropriate. I may trigger you in a way that I didn't know that I could or would. And I have to take full responsibility for that. So I always wait for those moments too, sometimes in fear, but that's okay because I don't (laughs) mind the challenge, but you know, sometimes it's hard, you know? Well, and I think you create such a safe space for people to be very honest. I mean, I have shared deep stuff on your, on your project. And I think, I wonder if something that I have said might make someone, I mean, there was someone followed me up. I can't remember his name, but he literally said, he was like, Ooh, I, uh, I don't know how to follow that. And I was like, Oh, I went too deep. God bless him. But it's, I mean, I think that is the lovely pace I get or not pace, but the lovely space you have created for people to go as deep or as surface as they would like to. So anyway, okay. 
Well, that was a lot, but I just really like this project. Okay, we hope you enjoyed your abs, folks. We're going to go on to the entrees after a quick break. We are back, and now it is time to move on to the entrees, folks. Okay, Ethan, this is where we do a speed round of questions, but you feel free to tell stories whilst you answer these things. But these are the same sort of questions that are always on the pod. Okay, so you already answered this with babysitting, but I'm still going to stick to my format. What was your first job ever? Well, it was running um, an imaginary (laughs) diner called uh, Ethan's Diner in my basement uh, with invisible customers with my sister that I made her um, do the early shift because I like to sleep in. But my first real job with that was actually not imaginary was babysitting. Oh, was that also epimonious in your, was it Ethan's babysitting or was it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you. I'm really curious. I was like desperate to work as a young person. Oh, oh yeah. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. Like <laughs> I was absolutely desperate to be mm-hmm. an adult. I mean, I think a lot of kids are, but like, but beyond just being an adult, like I really wanted to like earn money. And I like, yes, I probably did have a thing called Ethan's babysitting because everything I named everything. Yeah. Like I like had my desk out. I had like a dartboard. Like I had like my office. I had an office. Okay. Like I wrote fake checks. I mean, it was just, I was just desperate to just work, like be a business person, Wait, so, how- so stupid. Cause I was an artist. <laughs> <laughs> but how old were you when you opened Ethan's diner? Oh God. I was probably like, yeah, like eight. Or so something. you were eight. Yeah, so your first job was, was- <laughs> so your yeah, first job um, was at eight. I, babys- I started babysitting really young. I mean, now when I think back on it, I'm like, Wait, people left me with their children at night? 100%. I was just talking to my mom about this the other day. I think I was like 12 when I first started watching kids. And it's like, I couldn't, I didn't even know where my thumbs were. And these people were like, yep, we're going to go get drunk, watch our kids. Like, what? Same. It's unbelievable. I think about how I got left in like houses at night and I grew up in a rural place. It was like the middle of the woods. Like, I mean, and how I wasn't more scared. Yes. Like, I just was like, yeah. And then they would like drive me home at like midnight, one in the morning and like dump me off at my parents' house or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, I had the keys to my house to go in. Yeah. I was like totally the town babysitter. And I was like saving all that money so I could buy that VHS video camera. Okay. So it was a very lucrative gig. Yeah. Uh, so that was my first, first job. But then my first legal job, like when I was actually not, you know, breaking child labor laws <laughs> was um, I worked in a grocery store. Yeah, my oh. What'd you do? What'd you do? And what was it called? So I started off as the, the um, stocking shelves and then, but I was desperate to become the cashier. Oh, of course you press the buttons. Yes. I spent my whole childhood. My Nana almost bought me a real cash register because that's what I wanted when I was a kid. I was like, I need a real one, Nana. I need a real one. I was like, this little fucking Fisher Price bullshit is not working for me. I want real money and I want a real, real receipt that comes out and I can rip it off and give it to you when you fake buy your groceries. Get it together, Nana. Get me this right now. It was a tip tip like make like a conveyor belt. Get out of here. No, I was like, I was like, I, again, this is another example of how I was like dying to work all the time. And so, <laughs> yeah, so I was desperate to, so I started off stocking the shelves. I was like, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. I had to wear like an apron. And so I was like, so then I worked my way up to bag boy. And then I had to go out and get all the carts in the, you know, like the shopping carts that would be in the uh, parking lot in the dead of the summer, which was awful. Like, cause you had to wear a tie and a, um, a tie you know, to collect carts. How seriously is uh, Connecticut taking it in a town of 478 people? Stop and shop in Connecticut, stop which was first, it was called finest. And then it was called stop and shop. And then it was called Edwards all the time I worked there. The stop and shop, the finest and the Edwards, they were serious about everybody looking a certain way. Yes. I had to wear a white button down shirt and a tie and I had to go out and get all the fucking shopping carts. And then I was like, I'm going to be a cashier. So I, I weaseled my way in to be a cashier. How does one weasel your way into that position? Well, for me, the way I weaseled my way in was because luckily it was a bunch of teenagers who worked there as well, like <laughs> older than me. And um, they used to get drunk on the weekends. And so this girl came in and she um, was hungover and she literally on a busy, I just remember this on this very busy, busy, busy Saturday, she had to throw up and she like, she, I was bagging her groceries and she was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And she like ran to the bathroom. And so this woman who became my friend later, her name was Hillary. She was at the quick, quick check. Is that what it's called? The quick check. Yeah. And she turned her 10 items or less and she turned around. She was like, get on, get on it. And so there I was, it was like my dream. I was like, it was like crisis, like moment. And I stepped in and I was like beeping the things. And she was telling me all the codes to punch in. And then my manager saw my potential. Thank God. 
<laughs> I was meant to scan items. Thank you. And enter the beep beep codes. Good job, yeah. Ethan. That's that's impressive. So you worked your way up. And now you said you you lived through three name changes of that grocery store. So how many years did you work there? I worked there, I guess, like all through through high school. So I guess like 15 to to 18. I oh, that's a long time. Yeah. 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 Was it just on the weekends then or would you work there after school? No, after school. I worked after school. Are you kidding me? Oh, no, I worked even. like the five to no, uh, like three thirty to nine thirty shift because I think you could work until 10 or nine thirty or something. Like when did you work. do homework? Oh, I didn't do homework. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I did. I did homework. I was a, ve- I was a hustler. I was a hustler. Yeah, I, I would were. get home at nine 30. I lived with my grandma and I would, she lived down the street and I would just, I would do my homework while I made, you know, I made her dinner. I'd put a lean cuisine in the microwave and we'd have dinner and I would just do my homework. I was a night owl. I'd stay up really late and how many customer service jobs have you had? I've counted three with Ethan's diner and then with babysitting and with the grocery store. So we're up to three. What else do we have? I think that I, because I've listened to your podcast. Oh, thanks, Congratulations. Thank I love you. it. You're brilliant. You're a great you. host. Thank you. I knew this question was coming. I quickly added them up in the shower. That sounds like I was masturbating or something. But um, <laughs> That not. counts. That's a job. Okay, that's true. <laughs> that's a job. Um, I think I've had 10 customer service ten? jobs. I think. I okay. think it's 10. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay. And do you, can you list, so we've got, you're probably not counting babies or you're probably not counting Ethan's diner. So I'm going to say 11, but, but but can you tell me, do you know the 10 offhand? I think I do. Okay. Okay. So it was finest, uh, stop and shop Edwards. Okay. That's why. Then I quit there and I went and I worked as a soda jerk. I love saying that, um, at an ice cream shop, um, like it's like 1950s and I scooped (laughs) ice cream and stuff at the whistle stop cafe. Um, and then in and, and then when I went to university or college, I, over the summers and during the year, I washed dishes in a cafe in London. Over the summer, I did telemarketing in New York City, oh. uh, where I had to do surveys. Uh huh. I worked at The Gap uh, for a really short time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I moved to LA and I waited tables at a restaurant for a really long time. Oh, but before that, I was like a host at a restaurant for like the weekend, but then that didn't work out. So that was, I consider that like, it was like a trial shift. And then, oh, before that though, I forgot, I, I weaseled my way into, I'd never waited tables before up in the Bay area. I weaseled my way into wait tables. So there was, I waited tables and then at this restaurant up there, then I did that trial shift as a host or hostess. Then I waited tables at this LA restaurant for many, many, for five and a half years. I worked there. That was my job for five and a half years. Like very, very, you know, it was just my steady job. Then I worked at Kmart. Hey, oh, okay. In, in, in LA. Um, I know, from the Grove. I know exactly where that is. It's since, it's since closed. May I know. It, I, it I saw a picture of Britney Spears standing in front of it. And I was like, that's the Kmart. That's not Kmart anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, I worked at the Kmart and I then, oh my God, wait. Um, I taught English as a second language. Oh, wow. And I, I became a naked cleaner. Yep. I think that's it. Okay. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Twelve with uh, your your initial diner that you opened. So yeah, that's amazing. Okay. But for eight consecutive hours, Ethan will be on a monthly Zoom call. Take it, talk. Jesus fucking. This is my first time doing this, Ethan. Take your time. <sighs> Thank <Take> you. Your time. <laughs> fucking drop her off the side of your house. Ethan. <laughs> I can't. You don't tell like, a nine-year-old that you're going to do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I don't know what you mean, Ethan. It's horrifying. <laughs> She's fine. I mean, you don't really see birds these days. 